In this episode, we're going to take a look at threat identification, some things you can think about, prepare for beforehand, and look for when things are happening to identify possible threats. We'll be focusing on the idea of an active shooter and things you can do to be better prepared and know what attracts those people as well as possibly how to spot them. But this can be used for any type of threat in any situation. That's just the context we're going to put it in. So take these principles and apply them to any situation you're in and adding it to your situational awareness so you can always look for potential threats and make decisions and forecast what possibly could happen instead of waiting to see if it does and make the decision to keep you and your family safe. We're also going to answer a viewer's question, doing a follow-up to a podcast he listened to that I answered for him and give him some ideas and advice and see where we go from there. Threat identification, that's what we're going to talk about right here on Gray Man, Hiding in Plain Sight. Before we begin, we're going to answer a question from at Fairbane on the Intel training page. He's contacted me there before. I should have pointed that out just to say I do respond to questions anywhere. I get them on Facebook, Twitter, email, comments on videos, comments on podcasts, and also through the Intel training page through the messaging center. He says, thanks for the reply on the podcast related to loved ones and my start in fugitive recovery. For those of you who remember, that was a few weeks ago. I've officially begun operating my area. I'm taking your advice into practice, furthering my skill sets. I'm taking weapons courses including retention. I found a small group of former SF guys that offer classes. Name included below if you could help me verify their competency in any way. I'll just jump ahead and let you know the name of them is called Red Frog. Uh, and just to let you know, I know it'll probably be a while until you hear this. I looked up and found a few websites. The only one I think is probably them wanted my email to sign up and I didn't want to sign up until I was for sure that was them. So if you can send me the link to that website, I will give you a review and see what I can find out about those people. If they are former Special Forces guys, it's very likely that they know what they're doing. Now, I've done podcasts on training before, just because they have a certain resume also doesn't mean that they're good instructors, but I'll definitely take a look at it and see what kind of stuff's going on there. He goes on to say, I lived in a rural area. Being said, criminal circles are smaller than, say, bigger cities. This I consider an advantage when locating a skip because he's a bounty hunter, skip tracer. I have a few contracts to sift through when looking for related names, addresses, activities. I found social media to be insanely helpful, as you mentioned before. Many people have no regard for hiding information that could jeopardize their security. Yes, this is why we say most criminals are dumb. My reason for this week's email, and me saying most criminals, I'm biased on that. I don't know. There's, there's nothing to quantify that. I'm just saying. My reason for this email is I like to develop a system that would help me not to only keep track of past and present skips, but also establish connections across all my investigations. The idea being the more intel I gather, the easier I can make connections in the future. Yes, that is how intel works. The more information you have and you can catalog and keep, you can cross-reference in the future. My first step toward this system is to come up with a document. One to two pages might resemble a job application. Name, address, known associates would be all included. Only instead of them providing the resume, I seek out the intel myself. If you were writing a document with this goal in mind, finding fugitives, what would you include? After establishing a base document for individuals, I'm also trying to figure out a way to file them where they are both organized and easy to make connections. So it's kind of funny. The statement, if I was writing this, what would I put in there? And I was going to say, here's some presumptions I have. Apparently I'm wrong because in your paragraph before that, you don't have all this other basic data. So there's, for a filing system, you got to do whatever works for you. For a filing system, I imagine, I'm going to say I imagine or I'm, I'm thinking there's certain things that exist that may not because I've never worked in this business. 
I've hunted people, but not like this. So I imagine there's some sort of case number or court number. Now, granted, maybe they have many different police things. Maybe there's a number, a numbering system for when you get the paperwork saying, hey, go find this guy. You know, he's out there. I would probably use that. I would, I would, well, if it was me, I would use Excel number one. Excel or numbers if I was using an Apple computer. I would put in a certain set of information as cross-reference search tools for my filing system, which would be probably every number associated with a bounty, probably every court case number, which I know could be a lot, definitely their name. And then you may even add in other areas like geography or, or something like that and dates, time periods. Which one you'd use for paper filing, I don't know. I don't know if you're news filing cabinets, notebooks. It's hard to say, but to start with, and this, the reason I added this onto this one is because you're dealing with threats all the time. Cause we're going to talk about some threat identification stuff that hopefully helps you and other people like you and the private investigators out there that listen and the, and the police officers and the military Intel guys that I've talked to. The other thing is to consider not just how you want to do this safely, but to have an organized way of, keeping this information and it goes into the podcast I've been waiting to do. It's probably going to be very long on the next step to building the Intel network. One is all biographical data. I would get all biographical data I could on these individuals, complete names, any and all phone numbers organized by when they were used. If that's known, including landlines, cell phones, even if it's a landline to their mama's house when they lived there, social security numbers, any numbering system attached to them, which could be police records, court records. It could be credit card numbers if you have that, license plates. Anything with a number on it can be connected to an individual. Addresses they've lived at. I would have that as basic biographical stuff. I was assuming this was something that probably already existed, but it sounds like you have to create this on your own. I would do that. I would also look at things like the same idea detailed out for known associates. Now, this can be a lot of work, but when you're cross-referencing in the future, when you have this catalog of information, this is exactly like when we catalog info, sort of, when it comes to looking for terrorists. We look for Bob the terrorist, right? Bob's a new terrorist. So you're looking for Bob the skip, and you come across a known association named Dave the skip. Because you've cataloged this all before, you find that Dave's a known associate of another guy. So maybe that Dave's a known associate of Chris the Skip, and you could possibly go talk to Chris to find out when he's last talked to Dave or how to find Dave so that you can find Bob. That's one thing to look at. And then I would do this on any known associates, not just criminal associates, businesses or anything they've worked at. If you're chasing them down, family members, it's really a lot of work. Depends on how detailed you want to get. But I would definitely get the basic data Definitely do known associates and known locations and then start building your knowledge base both on a computer and files but also in your brain about everything going on with criminal activity and, and all these kinds of things. Another thing I would look at is if you have the ability and you know a cop or you know somebody who's worked in Intel locally that you can sit down and talk to to find out things they do in investigations or how they organize stuff or the information they keep on people. And I would definitely talk to a cop or if you have somebody that's an attorney you can talk to to make sure that there's, because of your job, is there anything you're not allowed to collect data on and store in a fixed form of medium because of some law? You want to make sure you're careful with that. 
I don't know how often this happens, but I imagine it's it's possible, I suppose, that you could get called into court for a bounty you picked up that's being put on trial because you're there as a witness because you saw him do something. Perhaps it's a different trial case because you had to use force and they get a lawyer and that gets out of hand. Always keep that in mind. So one of the things to definitely look at is, and I would get a professional, I wouldn't try to do this on your own. Is there anything you cannot collect and store on a fixed form of medium due to privacy laws or concerns? Like clearly medical stuff's out, medical information such as diagnosis and treatment, however, comma, you'd want to check this, but I imagine if you know they use the clinic on 4th and Bob Street that you can get the basic info on the clinic, their hours, their phone numbers, and people work there just so that you have that info as a known location. That's not medical information on him. That's geographical information on that clinic. And then if you decide to go look for a dude and you identify a pattern that, you know, every 90 days, sometime in the third week, he just happens to go to the clinic, probably getting some kind of treatment. You know the hours. You know the kind of people that are going to be there. You can, you know, go and check the place out and maybe pick them up there. So that's part of the reason why I do the locations too. The next thing he says, well, I'm jumping ahead, but he says, in the future I'll put in conversations I'd rather not have the podcast in quotation marks if that works. And, of course, down below the red frog thing I mentioned, you put in quotations. So that's going to confuse me. I, it would just be easier if you said, please don't use this conversation in a podcast. That would be easier to do. And then another one he says, and we haven't talked about it this week, catching up on podcasts, I want to take a swing at the Gray Man Challenge, the Open Source Challenge. I'm very behind, but where can I find the information to begin? So what I've been doing is one or more times a week in a podcast, I have deliberately listed off information, like one of them I listed off several states, one of them I told some information about my siblings, one I told some kind of information about myself. There's a dropped piece of information on the UFO discussion I have with David Robertson. If you can, it shouldn't be hard to figure out and you should be able to figure it out in the first 30 minutes because it doesn't happen all that often. It's also thinking about Anything you think you know about me probably came from a podcast and something I said and trying to use that information and information I drop and just start doing general searches to try to figure things out. And the idea is to find any phone number and email that I've ever used, well over 10 of each. There are certain give me's, for example, my email, I put on the Intel training page all the time. It's in the show notes of the podcast that's out there. There's other emails I've used. I've used Gmail accounts. I've used Microsoft accounts. I've used Apple accounts, Yahoo, and also accounts I call local accounts that belong to certain internet service providers. You know, I've talked about I live in Arizona and that I live in southeast Arizona in a small town, and I mentioned there's a military base here. Probably not hard to figure out where I'm at. At least it's a series of small towns, so probably in one of these areas. I've mentioned several things over time without giving too many specifics, but I knew that giving out some information makes me more personal and that's good. The idea is to take anything you've learned from anything you can do on your own and then try to do these searches and do the best you can to see if you can find any information. So hopefully that helps you out. Finding the information's on you. Now, getting into the threat identification, it's a huge problem, of course, threats. And there's things we want to understand about them. And we're going to use some information. Uh, some of it I got from 
a website that I kind of checked. It looked to be fairly accurate. I just kind of glanced at it, but it seemed to have some pretty good information. So a few things we want to understand about threats and focusing mainly on active shooters. Here's some fun facts that uh, people don't know. In the last 20 years, about 60% of mass shootings have occurred at a business. 40%, not 40 of the 60, 60 have been at a business. 40% of all shootings were at places like stores, restaurants, or movie theaters. About 10% were at local state government buildings. About 5% were in medical facilities of some type. And about 5% happened at places of worship. You notice that there's not schools in there. That's because since the early 90s and the last 30 years, there's been a 78% decrease in school shootings. Yet that's what we see on the news all the time because violence in kids getting hurt sells for political agendas. But that is an actual known statistical fact. Now, there's types of things that people probably heard like soft targets and hard targets. Think of it this way. Soft target, no security, no awareness, nothing. Hard targets have security, have infrastructure, have situational awareness. So if you think about government, a lot of government buildings you may go to or a bank, someplace that has uniform security inside the building, and especially if they have access control where you have to go through, say, like a metal detector in a, court, a courtroom or a courthouse or TSA, for example, those are considered hard targets. There's internal infrastructure security measures, and there are security guards. Go to a grocery store, that's a soft target. Go to a place of worship, also a soft target. They don't have those things. There's also external features, security camera systems that could be inside and out. There's also the way the parking lots are set up. Some places around military installations, government buildings, you've probably seen those massive planters the size of a car. They put plants in. Those are security features to help stop people from running through with vehicles and blowing things up. Sometimes they're just very obvious. They're those center divider concrete barriers you see like on the freeway. Or you got places where you've got those big concrete poles that come out of the ground. They're four feet high that we people try to jump over all the time and get hit in the nuts. Some of those are there in case of vehicles backing up in the loading dock, but most of them are there, some sort of security feature. We often see these in parks, places like that, where there's nothing about the park other than people visit it, so it's to minimize the impact of people driving out there. It's not just a safety feature for drunk drivers, although some of them are probably that old. A lot of them are have to do with violence. So when you have things like controlled access, you know, a doorman, a security guard, key card entries, scanners, they don't even have to be high tech. These are considered hard targets. Soft targets ain't paying attention to nothing, little to no security presence. And most of the shootings have been in gun free zones. Not just gun free zones where you're not allowed to have guns, but also at soft targets in gun free zones. So they're like doubling down. Now, the thing is, while I'm talking about shootings, the statistics don't all match across everything. But if you look at other types of attacks, places where people get attacked at home, Granted, there's, that's not always avoidable, and some of them are random. but Some are targeted. You know, road rage, all these other things. A lot of them are soft target situations. If you think about road rage, real road rage incidents, if a cop was there parked next to the guy and the guy wanted to yell, I'm kind of problem, he saw that cop, he won't do it because he became a hard target because law enforcement's there. They do it when nobody else is there, and then they chase him through town, and they make movies out of them. So that's something else to understand. The first thing is to realize... Every time you go somewhere 
or even just the way that you're traveling, whether you're traveling through an airport or you're just in your vehicle, one of the things to pay attention for, like driving, is where are police officers? Where do they tend to be in your area? When I move places or visit places for a couple of weeks, I tend to ask where police officers tend to sit. People always think it's because I want to make sure I'm not speeding at those times. No, it's because I want to know and have access to them because I know that driving in my vehicle, I look like a soft target to most people. So it's understanding that places you go, even places you frequent now, even your business, what about them is a hard or soft target? It's like people think of a military base as a hard target. I think that's a mistake. That's a massive installation, even a small one. It's a hard target because you got to get through the gates. There's definitely secured facilities. But when you're on a military base, it's not hard to walk into like the barracks, if you know where they are. It's not hard to figure out which ones don't have duty guys there at what times. It's not hard to walk into offices and just start asking questions, looking for somebody and acting like you're lost. I've done it as a civilian after I left the military with a beard, and I've had people be very cautious about what I'm doing that are concerned. And many times, though, they're not. So don't think of an entire piece of property as hard or soft. Think of it building by building. So that's something to pay attention to. Soft targets tend to be an easier and more common target. Does it mean a hard target won't be um, somebody coming after it? No, it does not. But identify these places. What's their awareness? What's their internal security? What's their external security? What's visible security as far as uniformed people, controlled access? And just realize that You'll know right away, many of the places you go most likely are soft targets. For many of you, it could be almost 99% of them. Then take that information and say, which ones are places that match where other events have happened since the turn of the century? You know, what, for example, what type of restaurants or bars were there mass shootings in and why? What types of places? Not just the fact that they were a restaurant. What kind of restaurant was it? What time of week was it? You know, did you realize that there's certain times of day and days of the week where certain events tend to happen in times of the year. Crazy enough. That can be tracked. You know, what? what is it about these places of worship? Why were they targeted? There's something that they did. Somebody used an excuse. Was it some sort of bigotry? You know, what was the reason behind it? Identify that, but also figure out why exactly did they target this place? And were they targets and events that happened during any religious holiday or religious service? Just like some extremist Muslims use Ramadan, especially in war zones, to beef back up things that they're doing. And just kind of like the Vietnamese use the Tet Offensive. There are people that take advantage and use and target religious services and religious places because of certain events that may have nothing to do with that actual building. So it's kind of figuring that out, figuring out exactly why places are targeted and then factor that into your normal everyday stuff and travels and places you're going. In 2007, there was a kid who shot up his school in Oregon. By the time the police showed up, he was already at home putting his gun away. He did get caught. One of the things he had mentioned is that he felt like he never belonged, like he was an outsider and he wasn't part of anything, part of the school, part of a group, part of nothing. More likely from a psychological standpoint, he used a firearm to express his discontent with not being a part of something. Outsiders are a serious threat. The thing is, while everybody was shocked that this kid had done it, they easily found out, as he had stated, he had talked to many people about, even the school counselor and teachers and other people, about not feeling like they're part of the group, not feeling like they belong, feeling like an outcast, feeling like an outsider. That situation, real or not, because of how it manifests and what happens with a person does lead to people acting out sometimes with violence. There is a direct connection to it. 
Why is this important? People tend to commit these attacks or even when they attack other people, they don't have to be shootings. It could be robberies, any type of violent crime. It could be nonviolent crime, it could be home invasions. It could be attacks on the streets, even muggings. Short of the exception is people that are strung out on, say, drugs, substance abuse. That can affect their judgment. But in most cases, people attack people in places, an attack can mean a robbery, it doesn't have to be violence, that they don't feel an attachment to. It makes it easier. They feel guilty about going after the attachment or whatever. It's why a lot of times in movies and TV shows, we see people that are doing a robbery, getting some people together. You know, they ran away from their rich family because they don't want to be associated with, you know, their rich whiteness or whatever. And then they find these friends and they do minor league criminal activity. And then they, you know, get their group of friends and then they're going to go attack their mom's house and rob mom of all their jewelry. Well, I'm sure that's happened. It happens so much in TVs and movies. It's kind of just like, come on, that's not realistic actually there's a connection there with family so it's probably not going to happen so the thing is while any type of attack should always be looked at it's supposed to be a law enforcement for any insider threat anybody that helped them you know all these other situations a lot of times especially with violence they are outsiders that don't feel an attachment there but like this kid he went to that school so not feeling an attachment and being an outsider doesn't mean you're not there all the time that's why it's so, so hard to find these people and why it confuses people when they're like, I can't believe that guy did it. It's because of that lack of attachment. So it's understanding that when you look at people or you're involved in security or whatever you're doing and there are people there expressing concerns about not feeling like they're part of the group, feeling like an outsider, not feeling like they belong, that should raise a red flag that something needs to be addressed. Does not mean this person's going to act on violence. Very few of them ever do, and it usually takes a long time before they do. But that should tell you that there's other things to address that could help mediate the possibility of that person or somebody in the future acting out, especially with violence, against that location or any other. Do you have a legal responsibility to do that? Probably not, but that's something to take into consideration is how to identify that. The other thing is realizing that People that make these attacks, there's no percentage track that I know of where it says they have no attachment here because they don't care. They just want to do something. They never met in this place versus the person that's there all the time that feels like an outcast. I don't know what the numbers are on that. Another thing is people that can that conduct surveillance, basically case in the joint, as they say, you know, case in the joint, case in the bank for in the movie, they're going to rob it. They tend to make repeated visits and try to determine how they want to commit their attack because a lot of these are planned. Most of these shootings are planned. They're not just go home and grab your gun. They consider exactly how and why they want to do it at this location. Thing is, all the reasons vary. Sometimes they wanted to do it. Some of the kids in schools wanted to do it where the most people were there to cause the most casualties. Sometimes it was the exact opposite. Sometimes they want to make sure they're there because a certain event happens or a certain time the store opens. Less likelihood to get caught, more likelihood to get caught. There's a whole lot of reasons. But a lot of times law enforcement, they'll find surveillance and security cameras that show people taking an interest that stand out, that fit the description of the shooter and become them. If it's the insider threat person, they already know most of that stuff. So unless they're asking questions out of the ordinary, it's going to be harder to find that. But it's important to realize, especially with the locations, people tend to commit some sort of surveillance, even if it's a one-time drive-by. This is why, with situational awareness, you should always pay attention to your surroundings. 
You should pay a lot of attention to things that stand out just in your neighborhood or your place of business where you spend large amounts of time. But also, as part of your just ongoing active situation awareness when you're at the grocery store. You know, I pay attention to things. When somebody gets in an argument with customer service or the checkout lady, I take notice, quickly run through where the exits are and decide what I'm going to do and why in case this escalates. Has it ever escalated in front of me? No. But it could, and I want to be prepared for it. So it's understanding that there are things that you can foresee and that you need to pay attention to in order to make decisions and be safe and get you and your loved ones out of there. And part of it is realizing when people are essentially casing the joint, performing surveillance. So a couple of fun things we have in our brain. Dopamine, that's the happy thing that a lot of people don't have. Get that dopamine rush sometimes when you're working out, among other things, or when you have sex. You know, you're out there as an Instagram hoe or just on social media and you put random statements out that people like me look at and know that you're fishing for compliments, but you do it because you get all these compliments and praise and these thumbs up makes you feel good, just like winning on a slot machine makes you feel good. Same thing if people aren't liking your videos or liking your Facebook page or not leaving comments and you get upset about it. It's one thing if you're trying to figure out a way to make this work better because you have a business, but if you're just doing it for your personal gratification, you're not you're losing dopamine essentially when you're seeing all this bad stuff. The other thing is adrenaline gives us that superhuman ability. Here's the thing. When people are about to commit acts of violence, especially violence, but even any other attacks, they get hyper-focused to the point adrenaline starts naturally rushing through their body. It takes a lot of training. And obviously, if it's a burglar and they're not a trained burglar, they just got better over time. It's similar to training a lot of repetitive behavior in real-world environments in order to learn how to keep that calmness. And there is training for it. This is why there's certain soldiers and certain what we'll call higher levels that function chemically with their brain chemistry and their body function better in high stress situations than regular soldiers do because of the training they have and because of what they've learned about themselves. Most people aren't like that. So the dopamine is starting to build up because they're about to get the satisfaction of what they're going to do. I don't know that all of them have dopamine, but they definitely all have adrenaline. So what happens when we have that? They become hyper-focused. They're not fidgeting. They're not playing with bags and stuff. They're not dicking around on their phone right? They're not doing any of that. The people that do that, that are about to do something are trained people probably working together as a team. Like you see in movies, whether they're a bunch of cops arresting a guy or, you know, spies undercover. It's a movie, but there's some logic to it. But most of these people act alone or in a couple of guys and that adrenaline hits and they're hyper-focused. They're looking around. They tend to be more rigid, not fluid and casual. Their face changes completely. People that have been mugged or attacked on the street have noticed these things right before it happened or noticed people that are looking around and seeing them and realize the attack's coming. People sometimes see individuals with a look in their eyes and recognize that there's a threat. It's because that person is probably surging with adrenaline for some reason, even if it's just because of an argument they had. So one of the things to look for is to pay attention to people that stand out because they're more focused. The way they look, the way they're behaving, pinpointed eyes, as people would say, not necessarily pupil pinpointed, but like pinpointed, pinpointed eyes, they're not fidgeting with anything. Their head's going to be kind of down, usually somewhat rigid. These are signs of things that are consistent with people that have conducted attacks, especially active violence. Does that mean every time you see it, it's not going to happen? No. But of all the things I've said like that, that's the biggest threat out there. I would take every time I saw somebody like that as a very high likelihood potential that something's about to happen, whether planned or if somebody just comes up and says the wrong thing to them, that they react and start smacking people. 
there's a very high probability of that happening. And you definitely want to avoid that by identifying who those people are. Now, why these are only a few signs, they are consistent and universal. They've shown to be the case for many crimes, including acts of violence. You know, I think that um, based on the story, if it's true, if you go back to the, one of the first shootings, people tend to remember Columbine, the two kids coming in wearing the army clothes and the bag full of guns, and they were kind of laughing and casual with people about it. If that is exactly what it was like, I would consider that a bigger threat if I seen it beforehand than somebody that was kind of hyper vigilant and running full of adrenaline because they're about to do something. Because they're so calm and casual with what they're doing, they're likely to be more successful and cause far more casualties, which is what happened. I would imagine that there's information out there that may be released over time or maybe some criminology class has where they look at some of these shooting situations or other acts of violence and take witness statements based on how the person was reacting right before the shooting happened and find a consistency of not only behaviors, but the two types of behaviors, the rare one, the very calm one, like the column guy guys supposedly were versus the very hypervigilant flesh of adrenaline dopamine guys and their level of success in what they were trying to do. The casual guys being a far bigger threat. Despite all the things I teach people and things I look for, I do follow the cops standard default especially if I'm in a possible threat situation or I see somebody like this and I start watching their hands and their waistband and trying to see what may or may not be in there because watching their hands, they're going to do something with their hands, but they're not going to look at it with their eyes. They're going to keep looking at what they're doing and they're just going to instinctively try to get whatever they're getting trained or not. This is why cops are always watching people's hands because it's very important. People can pull out weapons, even pencils and cause a lot of damage. So definitely be watching people's hands. These are simple signs. Maybe these are things you've thought about, but these are very realistic, very consistent, proven to be true. And then seeing the same thing happen with video surveillance or in-person surveillance of any type of terrorist action that has happened. Even some of our own soldiers throughout time in the last 20 years that have committed attacks on U.S. forces have said things that people took note of but didn't report or didn't think was a big deal. And sometimes when they were reported, people did not take them seriously because of the person's rank or who they were, which was a huge mistake. Part of the reason why I trash on the military a lot, big military or big armies, we say, not necessarily individuals because of how they handle situations, which is badly. And we don't want to be like those people. But this plays into situational awareness. That's what this really is. It's another way to use situational awareness to your advantage to identify threats, possible threats, situations that could possibly escalate. Ones you're not involved in. If you're involved in them, then the goal is to de-escalate and or evacuate, depending on the situation. De-escalate, then evacuate. Once it's a serious threat, you want to evacuate. But you don't want your evacuation to cause an escalation. When it's something you're observing, it's not your responsibility to get involved in. If that is the case, which most likely it is, what you're not worried about is de-escalation, although you're hoping it's happening. You're watching for signs that it's escalating. And not your opinion or ethics or morals or version of escalation is the person you took note of or more than one person involved in any situation. Does it appear that to a reasonable person it's about to escalate or it's definitely not de-escalating? Then up is the way it's probably going to go. And then you have the option to walk away. I've gone places for things I've needed or wanted, even stores and seen people arguing outside that I didn't want to walk by, get involved in because... If I was with inside 20 feet, they can cover that distance pretty quickly, even accidentally. Didn't want to be involved in it, didn't want to get held up, so I went somewhere else. So that's why you want to pay attention to stuff. You see a situation, it's not de-escalating, look like it could escalate, might be time to start 
think about that escape and invasion situation and getting out of there so you're not part of it or even if you're not a witness you don't get held up there because something really bad happens and when it escalates you don't know what it's going to escalate into even if you know that person you don't know their emotional state you don't know how they're going to handle this you don't know if they have a weapon or if they know to turn things into weapon you don't know if they're drunk or loaded up on drugs or just abuse some prescription drugs and start slamming people's heads in the wall you definitely don't want a part of that so you want to look for these signs and these things and Look for these internal external security measures. Determine, is it a hard target? Is it a soft target? Soft targets are more likely, especially certain types of soft targets. People choose those for a reason. You know, are you in a gun-free zone? If you're in a gun-free zone, that's a higher threat. Now, a gun-free zone can be a big area. It can be an entire city. But if you're in a neighborhood or a whole city, and let's say it's a gun-free zone, okay, that's strike one. That means, statistically... If an act of violence, especially with a firearm, was going to happen, it would more likely happen there because it's a gun-free zone. Doesn't mean it'll happen in yours, but it will definitely more likely happen in a gun-free zone. So we take note of that. Number two, we go to a place that is pretty much a soft target, even if we're comfortable because we go there all the time. All right, we're in a gun-free zone. We have a soft target. What kind of soft target is it? Well, if it's a soft target, especially ones like businesses like restaurants that have a high probability of having a shooting or violent encounter, even down to the places of worship, there are only 5%. That's strike three. We now have three reasons why that is a much stronger potential target. But we have to look at geography. Where are we? Even if we match all three of those, but we're in a nice neighborhood or we're in a neighborhood that tends to have less crime, tends to have less activity happening, doesn't mean nothing will happen there. But it might be a little safer compared to a neighborhood that has more crime or more of these activities that are more likely to happen. You know, Chicago's violence this year is up from last year, a few percentage points, but it's up almost 40% from like 2019. So if you're in a place like Chicago, even if you're blocks away, but you're in a general part of the area where violence tends to happen, it's a gun-free zone. It's a gun-free state, I guess. I don't know what it's going on there. You're in a soft target area and it matches profiles of places where this stuff has happened. And then let's say there's an event. There's a protest, a riot close by within a few blocks. They could get there quickly. Is it a religious facility and there's been stuff on the news about that type of religion or is it a type of ethnic neighborhood where there's been stuff, people targeting those ethnic neighborhoods, especially in your city, even if it's a big city? These are all red flags or strikes against us saying there's a much higher probability now that something could happen regardless of the time of day I'm there. And I want to point out it's a mistake to think that more bad things happen at night. While there may be a statistic to back that up, most of these really violent encounters, especially the shootings that we hear about, happen during the day. Doesn't mean you're safer at night. I'm just saying a lot of those happen during the day. Why? Because most of them actually want to inflict casualties and more people are present at more places when the sun's up. So those are things just to take consider when you travel places. Don't freak yourself out about it. Just use it to plan and pay attention better. Always have that escape evasion around. Always be situation aware. Always be reading body language. Always be thinking about things like rapport and conversational skills and whether or not conversations whether they're shitty or whatever we call them that we observe are causing offense, which could escalate. As much as I talk about all this stuff, being involved and engaged with conversations with other people, you should be, as I mentioned in the beginning, practicing by observing other people having conversations because most conversations we're actually involved with, we're not actually involved with. They're things that we hear. How many conversations do you hear in a grocery store? How many conversations do you hear in the checkout line? You know, have you been to the grocery store the day before Thanksgiving when they're packed? A lot of conversations going on. So many, they're hard to track. Restaurants, definitely conversations. Most of the conversations we're involved in or learning from are not our own. And that's where we get to see habits of other people and where we try to identify our own biases, 
and our own thoughts about gender interactions and focus on people that we don't even know to wipe a lot of those out and then to learn from and to develop these skills to be safer or smarter or be more persuasive or whatever you're trying to do with all this or maybe you're just doing it for fun. Bottom line though, as much of this you can learn and put in practice to pay attention, especially if the only thing, the only thing I ever taught anybody was situational awareness and how to make decisions and evacuate areas and de-escalate situations safely, that would probably make a lot of changes for a lot of people, even if they learn no other skills. So take this, think it through, apply it to the other habits and skills you've been practicing, pay attention to what's going on. When you see things on the news or on Twitter, especially if there's videos, take a look at them. Granted, it's only their, it's their story and limited stuff, but hey, watch a, watch a news show that's showing, you know, a protest happening that may or may not have violence or some sort of encounter and turn the audio off so you're not hearing them and just look around to see what you see in there. Were there signs you could identify? Because that's a form of self-training and practice to help you identify in the future and places you're in. Hey, I remember seeing this before. There's a potential. This could go badly. And that type of simple preparation will help you be better at situational awareness, will help you be safer. And taking these thoughts into account, you'll be able to identify situations with a higher threat potential and people that are demonstrating traits that are definitely consistent and correlate to known threat behaviors that individuals have had. Just remember that doesn't mean it's going to happen. It's about being aware of the possibilities so you can make the decisions, make the best decision to stay safe and be out of those situations, even if all it means you don't get delayed there for the rest of the day. If you like this episode, don't forget us a like, share, heart, whatever your platform is using, and make sure you let people know you think will enjoy this material. Give us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're at, and don't forget to check out the show notes and check out dmrpublication.com. And we will be back again shortly with more information right here on Grayman, Hiding in Plain Sight.